Section 17 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 3. Chapter 2. The Wars of Religion. Part 1. France could not continue to linger in the school of Italy. All her energies for the next two hundred years will be absorbed by her struggle, a real life and death struggle, with Spain and the Empire. The difficulty of understanding the development of France during this period is that her foreign policy and her home policy were almost constantly contradictory. She is like one of those machines whose wheels turn, some in one direction, some in another, one would think it ought to stand stock still, like two rams butting one another. Yet the machine works. And this difficult period is one of constant growth for France. Despite its wars and its catastrophes, it embraces, in a first act as it were, the reign of Francis I and the reign of Henri IV, and then what we must call, after Voltaire, the century of Louis Fourteenth. In this chapter I shall deal merely with the sixteenth century and with that earlier rivalry of France and the Empire which came to an end in the triumph of France on the accession of Henry IV. But Richelieu, Mazarin, and Louis XIV will still have three long lives to spend in stamping out the ashes of those ill-extinguished fires. Indeed, from early in the sixteenth century, till the beginning of the eighteenth the great affair not only of france but of europe was which shall be the leader france or the empire the empire was of course the empire of germany the holy roman empire of germanic nationality much less german than austrian for although nominally elective the empire was in fact for many hundreds of years a fief as it were of the house of habsburg when in 1519 the emperor Maximilian died, his grandson and natural heir was Charles V, the youthful king of Spain. But the empire was still supposed to be elective, and in fact a form of election was regularly gone through, candidates presenting themselves with a great flourish of credentials, and though the farce always ended in the choice of a Habsburg, the election of an Austrian was not absolutely a foregone conclusion. And the election of a king of Spain to a throne which already controlled both Germany and Austria, Lorraine and the Netherlands, Flanders and Alsace, with claims to Milan, Naples, Navarre, and Burgundy, such an overwhelming preponderance accorded to one royal house would so evidently upset the balance of power in Europe that the election of 1519 promised at least to be serious. Three kings presented themselves all young, the first of their rank in the world for the consideration of the seven princely electors. They were Henry VIII of England, Francis I of France, Charles V of Spain, and the German princes chose Charles of Spain the Habsburg. Now let us open a map and see how the possessions of this new emperor surround and stifle France. To the east, from the Channel to the Alps, reached the Netherlands, Flanders, Franche-Comte, Lorraine, Alsace, all Charles's, 
with at the back of them the German Empire. He contests the Italian frontier. On the southwest he owns Spain, and in right of his grandmother he is claimant to Burgundy, Artois, and Flanders. France lay in his grip. Let us suppose that in the present age, by some strange chance, an emperor of Russia, already king of Poland, with rights and pretensions to the crown of Italy, should be elected president of the French Republic and king of Belgium. Even so, the central empires of 1917 would not be as closely surrounded by their arch-enemy as 16th-century France was by the heir of the Habsburgs. This one glance at a map explains all the foreign policy of France, compelled to intrigue with the Turk, the arch-enemy of Austria, to coquette with England, to approach the Protestant princes of Germany, in fact, to invent and elaborate a great liberal league in order to counterbalance the immense orthodox forces of Austria, Spain, and the Empire. The friends of France abroad are the Turk, the heretic, and the infidel. And yet France is a great Catholic power, distraught with her own heresies, a house divided against herself. In the middle of the 16th century, at least one-fifth of France was Protestant, in some provinces far more, one-half of Burgundy and three parts of Béarn and the effort of the French kings was to reduce these Protestants by every form of battle, murder, and sudden death, to exterminate these heretic subjects, who were in France almost a separate republic, a state within the state, and yet who were of the same religion as the foreign allies of France. The very sovereign who negotiates an alliance with Henry VIII or Queen Elizabeth or a treaty with the Lutheran princes across the Rhine, is in his own country the enemy in arms of the upholders of the church of his allies. The situation appears inexplicable, unless we remember that what we call the wars of religion were in fact political wars. The monarchy had grown very strong in France under Louis XI, very splendid under Francis I, and also by reason of the frequent invasions of Italy and the constant infiltration into France of Italian culture, the monarchy had grown Italianate. The son of King Francis married a Florentine, and for fifty years at the court of Catherine de' Medici, Italian culture reigned. Gradually around her there was formed a sort of Italian colonel to the court, an inner council from beyond the Alps. There was Gondi the Florentine, who became Duke de Retz. There was the Milanese Birago, the magistrate who became Chancellor of France. There was also Strozzi, the Queen's cousin, ready to conduct her armies, and Gonzaga, son of the Duke of Mantua, who by his marriage became the French Duke de Nevers. All these and many more were the ardent adepts of the absolute Italian theory of government. Machiavelli was their great man. We know that Catherine's son, Henry, listened every night to a chapter of The Prince read aloud to him ere he slept, as good Huguenot listened to a chapter of the Scriptures. And doubtless his mother was no less well informed. 
not only in the great florentine but in all their italianate jurists and legists they found material to nourish their conception of a king it was the old roman conception of the monarch as the supreme almost divine expression of the state the king can do no wrong his will is law he is the soul of his people and they exist to serve him none shall worship at another altar than the king's nor think any private or public duty so sacred as his good pleasure no property of any individual no privilege of any province no liberty of any city had any rights or sanctions save his majesty's consent against his express command his subjects could have no defence and no redress such theorists saw little difference between a heretic and a rebel and in truth a Nugonot was often if not a rebel at least a constitutionalist there is a deep republican instinct in the soul of protestantism at least for the most part the huguenot held that if the monarchy degenerate into a tyranny it is the duty of subjects not to submit but to warn their sovereign of his excess and to correct the error of his ways like milon de dormont two hundred years before them they said the king reigns not by a divine right but by the suffrage of his people if we wish to see their point of view let us open the books of their poet and leader agrippa d'aubigne his tragique at any rate may i believe be bought for a very small price at every page of his memoirs we shall find some weighty sentence the king and his subjects owe a duty to each other the prince who breaks his faith to the people forfeits thereby his right to their allegiance the power of the prince proceeds from the people thus d'aubigny and the huguenot opposed to machiavelli the old gallican theory of monarchy indigenous to the soil in the ears of catherine de medici's italianate council it rang with the sound of treason and in perfect good faith autocratic catholics and democratic huguenots massacred each other as debasers of the moral currency of the state i do not deny that the huguenot gentlemen who swung from the balconies of the castle at amboise were martyrs to their faith but they died chiefly because they had failed in an attempt to kidnap the young king it was a plan that coligny avowed and other huguenots would calmly have taken the crown from the valois to place it on the brows of another bourbon their leader the prince of conde for whom they struck a medal with the inscription roi des fidèles king of the faithful not only were the protestants naturally republican or at least constitutionalist not only did they profess as jurieux their juris consult was soon to formulate it que le peuple est le premier souverain et que la souveraineté y demeure toujours non seulement comme dans sa source mais encore comme dans son premier sujet in addition to this inherent instinct of democracy we must not forget the suspicion which attached to the protestants on account of their supposed affiliation to the anabaptists of the low countries so in our own times in a country under autocratic government a liberal movement might by a not unnatural confusion be suspected of nihilist tendencies and persecuted on that account 
in perfect honesty on either side, a civil war, in fact as political as our war of the Cavaliers and the Roundheads, devastated France for more than thirty years, usurping the name and the principles of religion. The horrors of the Hundred Years' War were renewed. O France désolée, O France sanguinaire, non pas terre, mais cendre, writes Agrippa d'Aubigné in his Tragique and he records how he saw in a vision his country France bearing in her arms two twin brothers, who fight like deadly foes and lacerate their nursing mother's breasts, spilling her kind milk, tearing her tender flesh, until the anguished martyr cries, I have no milk to give you only blood. Yet there were those in France who deplored the struggle that knit the sons of France in so deadly a grip. Catholics like Ronsard, who bewailed the stains and smirches on his crucifix, en Christ un pistolet, tout noirci de fumée. Protestants like Henry of Navarre, who fought for their faith, and yet held that the fairest of victories was for brethren to dwell together in amity. There was a Montaigne, with his wise and meditative mind. There was a Michel de l'Hôpital, who denounced civil war as wicked and unnatural nay, the very queen mother herself, Catherine de' Medici, aspired to peace and harmony. In 1570 the reign of Concord seemed at hand. The struggle with Spain was acute, and naturally sent the French government to the further swing of the pendulum, toward England and Holland. There were great negotiations for marrying one of Queen Catherine's sons to Elizabeth of England. The young king, Charles the Ninth took for his mentor the Protestant chief, the Admiral de Coligny, and Catherine married her daughter to Henry of Navarre, the Prince of the Huguenots, who after her own three sons stood next in succession to the throne of France. Pope's niece though she was, Catherine was no bigoted Catholic, no martyr for her religion like Mary Queen of Scots. She was an unfanatical Italian, doubtless like that other italian caesar she thought these gauls too much addicted to religion and certainly she deplored the appalling waste and ravage of her children's property the kingdom of france these ruined provinces no longer paid their expenses the queen had if i may say household cares the annual cost of the kingdom was seventeen millions and the incomings not quite three doubtless if by raising a finger Catherine could have delivered the country from Protestants and Catholics alike, that finger would have been raised. She sought at least to play the two parties one against the other, leaning now to this side, now to that, in an impossible attempt at equilibrium. But the violence of the times was too great. She could be sure of neither party. In August 1572, when most she appeared to incline to the Huguenot faction, at that time assembled in Paris to celebrate the marriage of their prince with the young king's sister, she seems to have been suddenly startled by some rumor of a Protestant plot to capture the king, and trembled anew demoralized by terror. At that moment, I imagine, she must have cast her eyes on the book that was the political Bible of the Medici, Machiavelli's Prince. Or did she need to open it, knowing it so well by heart? 
therein she could read the danger of such a system as that which she had recently applied the perpetual shilly-shally between irreconcilable interests the doctrine of machiavelli is not unlike that which has inspired the kaiser in the war of nineteen fourteen to eighteen it is the apology for absolute power the right of a king to exercise cruelty in order to enforce obedience in fact the theory of frightfulness it is a theory which has a certain unholy fascination in print but when applied well we remember the effect on europe of the german ravages in belgium catherine too is doubtless taken aback by the result of her recipe for good government when no longer meditated in the study but put in practice on flesh and blood end of section seventeen